Would you please stay standing with me for the reading of the Holy Scriptures? Uh, this is from 1 Timothy 4, 1 through 5. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons, through the ins insincerity of liars whose con consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything God created, for everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. This is the word of God. You may be seated. All right, well, if... I guess if you have or if you haven't been kind of listening along the last few weeks, uh, if, if we could summarize everything that this kind of, maybe to some of us a little bit strange topical series has been getting at, you could summarize in the words of the New Testament author James, chapter 1, verse 17, where he says, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there's no variation or shadow due to change. We spent about three weeks exploring Genesis chapters one and two to talk, emphasize specifically the, the goodness of God, the generosity of God that's there in creation and even before creation that gets expressed through the goodness, the very goodness of the created world that he's made and that gets expressed through his image bearers, humans who, at least originally, unmarred by sin, unmarred by rebellion against him, uh, were meant to rule on his behalf and to carry his creation forward and that their work and their activity in the world was also meant to be a vehicle and a channel of God's blessing out into the world and to one another. In summary, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. So we want to turn from what was kind of a, a theological foundation now to start talking more practical. Like, so if all these ideas are true, I'm submitting to you that they are, what do we do with that? And I think one way into this by way of illustration is to talk about the unique scandal that comes when someone doesn't savor something properly. Um, for me, the, probably the greatest pet peeve is whenever I sit down to like watch a movie with someone, a movie that I'm really excited about. I'm like, I think you should be excited about. I think you're going to enjoy this. And they're texting through the whole thing. To me, it could be a friendship killer, frankly. Um, no, it wouldn't kill a friendship, but I'm like, oh, did you see that? And they're like, oh, yeah, yeah, I saw it, yeah. <laughs> oh, isn't this shot beautiful? Oh, yeah, that's nice. You know, it really grinds my gears, friends. Because... There's something there, and I don't care if they like this movie in particular, but there's at least the potential that they could be grabbed by it in the same way that I am. But if they're going to be, it requires attention. It requires kind of a, a turning of the gaze toward the thing to let it express itself as it is so that you can receive it, and you can reject it, or you can receive it, you can benefit from it, you can consider it good, bad, whatever. But there's something especially egregious about just not having your eyes open to the thing with distraction or whatever else. Um, I, I, Probably not in this, in this crew. This could be a scandalous illustration in, in, in some churches, but uh, probably not here. Um, one of the worst examples of this I can think of was I had, we had this friend in Arkansas. This was 11 years, 12 years ago at this point. He was a bartender at a pretty well-known bar uh, in Arkansas, and he was telling the story about how he, at the time, he lived with his roommates, and he, would, he was curating the, uh, you know, the liquor selection for this bar, 
And so he would come into possession of these really nice bottles of alcohol, um, and he was a real connoisseur, and he needed to taste stuff and try it for work or whatever. But there's this one particular kind of bourbon, some of you probably know what it is, it's called Pappy Van Winkle. Um, it's this extremely rare, they, they make an extremely limited amount, and you can get it new sometimes for a couple hundred bucks or whatever, but resold, particular bottles can sell for hundreds of dollars, thousands of dollars in some cases. This stuff is deeply, highly sought after. And the story goes, my friend George, he basically had this like super rare bottle of this extremely nice Pappy Van Winkle bourbon, and he set it on his, on his bar at home, and the basic rule that he had with his friends was, hey, we all share with each other. Like, if you guys bring something, it's okay for us to try it. If I, tr if I bring home something, it's okay for you to try it, whatever. That was the basic rule. He didn't realize he needed to amend this rule for this particular <laughs> bottle that he had in his possession that's like a once-in-a-lifetime find. So he came home one day from work, and he saw his, his roommate had had a bunch of friends over, and they were watching the game, whatever, football game, whatever, and there were just these, all these like pint glasses that were like half full of ice and Coca-Cola. He's like looking around, and he's like, oh, what's, uh, what were you guys, you guys watching the game? Oh, yeah. I was like, oh, what are you drinking? Oh, yeah, we've been making whiskey and Cokes. That whiskey you had is actually pretty good. <laughs> they had used it all mixed with Coca-Cola. The entire bottle was gone. He never got to try it. He never got to sip it. He never got to savor this complexity. You know, if you're into such things, if you're into bourbon, he never, he never even got a sip because it had all been mixed with ice and Coca-Cola and just downed, like from some dudes just watching the game, probably having too much to drink. You don't have to be a fan of whiskey. You don't have to be uh, into these particular things to know like, oh, there's something there <laughs> that's, that's wrong and that's messed up. And that gets at what I'm, that gets at the point here that um, it's, it's not just in this case, but in all of life, I think we are called with, in light of all that we've been learning about the goodness of God in creation and through other human beings, there's an opportunity to receive like deep blessing, deep appreciable things from God all around us, but it requires a holy savoring. It requires a holy attention being paid to these things. And I would argue that it's possible in light, of, in light of all these ideas that a holy attention in this way just might be an indispensable part of a healthy Christian spirituality. Um, I was reminded of this really recently. There's, there's a great author I love. We keep a couple of her books over there. Actually, the one that's kind of on display is one of hers. Her name's Tish Harrison Warren. Uh, she's an Anglican priest, fantastic writer. Um, and she wrote this article in the New York Times called How to Pray with Our Eyes Open. She's arguing for this. And I, I love this section. And the, we're, we're, we're going down the Russian nesting dolls here because she's quoting, she's quoting a quote here, but uh, I trust you can follow. So she writes, one of my favorite essays is a 1986 piece by the late theologian Eugene Peterson about the work of novelist Annie Dillard. He describes her as a woman who prays with her eyes open. Instead of closing her eyes to focus on things above, on so-called spiritual things, prayer becomes an act of noticing, of reveling, of cultivating the attention that leads to devotion. Peterson says that Dylan's task was to exegete creation in the same way that John Calvin was an exegete of the Holy Scripture. The passion and intelligence that, pa that Calvin brought to Moses, Isaiah, and Paul, she brings to muskrats, rotifers, and mockingbirds. Now, 
Harrison isn't arguing, Peterson wasn't arguing, I'm not arguing that we throw our Bible out and all we're, you know, our, the sum of our Christian spirituality is just about observing things in nature. I hope that's obvious that that's not what I'm saying. But it's a both and. The scripture gives us a foundation from which we can turn outward to see the things that God has made, to assess them properly, and then to receive them properly. And we need people like Annie Dillard or like Tish Warren, who are especially gifted at this, at helping us, maybe who aren't, aren't this way, to, to develop this gift of this sort of holy attention. Why? The, the thesis here is that each of these things, every good thing that God has given is not just a thing out there in and of itself, though we, we treat them that way, but it's an opportunity to commune with our God. It's a channel through which we can see and savor his goodness, his generosity, his loving care and concern for all of us. That's the point. It's not just, again, to, to let the things be in and of themselves, though it's right to celebrate them and so forth, but the even deeper matter is to connect with our God, who is the author of these things, the provider of these things. If we miss this skill, we miss opportunities all around us every day to connect with God more and more and more and more than we would otherwise. That's the point. So, let's pray, and then let's jump into that scripture that was just wonderfully read for us. Thank you, Andrew. Father, we need your help. Lord, we desire, I desire, to develop these kinds of eyes, these kinds of ears, Lord, that can hear and that can see you all around us through the things that you have made and you have given. Lord, not that you are these things, Lord, but that your fingerprints, your graciousness, your generosity, your benevolence is on display and so many other qualities. Lord, we don't want to be the kinds of Christians who live these bifurcated lives, Lord, between the spiritual things uh, and the spiritual times and the times that are so-called secular, full of other good things, Lord. We want you to be the Lord of all in our hearts and in our minds, the source of every good thing as your scriptures declare you to be. We want to receive these things, Lord. We want to receive you. Help us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'm going to read that passage again. So hear this. This is Paul in the, in the letter to Timothy, 1 Timothy. He's writing to a young pastor who's, who's in ministry. It's like largely a, a coaching. It's like pastoral coaching. Here's, here's some things you ought to think about, Timothy, and ways you ought to uh, enter into this ministry. And he says this. Now the Spirit expressly says, okay, so He's obviously quoting some sort of prophecy here. He, you know, he, he talks about getting you know, prophetic words from God numerous times, but this is one that seems very, very clear. The Spirit of God, that's the Holy Spirit, expressly. So there was some moment of extreme clarity where the Holy Spirit revealed something to Paul, uh, perhaps to Paul directly or through a prophet or something else, but this, this, this word came expressly from the Spirit concerning, what's he say, later times. And that's basically uh, more or less synonymous with like the last days. And if you, if you have your theology right, we can view the time, we should view the time that we live in as the last days. In the book of Acts chapter two, 
whenever Pentecost happened, the Holy Spirit was poured out in dramatic fashion. Peter stood up to sort of deliver this sermon that kind of explained what was happening and how they should understand it. And he quotes from the prophet Joel chapter 2. talks about the Spirit being poured out and uh, all the people of God, both slave and free, men and women, um, young and old. They're, they're, they're having visions and dreams and they're prophesying. And it's like this amazing outpouring of the Holy Spirit through everyone. That's, that's the point. It's through everyone. And he's talking about, and the language he uses is in the last days. So one way we think about the, the chronology of redemptive history is that when Pentecost happened, the, la- the kind of the clicker of the last days began. The timer started. We are not in the, you know, another phrase is the end times. We think about like, oh, what's that going to look like when basically the time just before Jesus returns and the new chapter begins on human history. That's Yes, that's a discrete time in history, but we can think of what we are in now rightly as the last, the last times before the fi- kind of the, the last last, if you will. So what, anyway, long background to say, what Paul is saying is that in the later times, this prophecy came about the later times, which is the times we're in now. And he's going to confirm that by saying it's happening. So the Spirit expressly says in later times, some will depart from the faith. Okay, How? Listen to this. By devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. Okay, so first he's talking about how these, these false teachings are going to come. He says they're, they're, they're evil spirits and demons who are the source of these teachings. Okay, this is dark stuff. And we probably, that tracks, okay, yeah, that makes sense. People depart the genuine faith for demonic stuff. Yeah, I understand that dynamic. And then he says it comes through people. It comes through people. Um, what's he say? It comes through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. Okay, so there's people who are lying, have seared consciences, broken consciences, stained and damaged consciences, who are delivering these, these demonic messages. Okay. So what's the message? What's the message? This is where it gets really strange. Here's the message. Who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. What? That seemed like shockingly mundane. Like he's talking about the teachings of demons and evil spirits and these liars with seared consciences. And you know what they're trying to do? trying to get you to not get married and thus not have sex and not have family. And they're trying to get you to not eat things, to not eat foods. (laughs) When I reread this passage this week, the shock like came over me like, what? Can you believe like this is the idea that Paul is challenging, that this was the demonic strategy? And I think it's shocking because Christians are often viewed, and genuinely, I mean, to be fair, sometimes we genuinely are, these sort of, like, sort of living lives as like a joyless slog. Like, no, don't do anything fun. Don't do anything cool. Don't enjoy anything. Just sort of be like austere and ascetic and like, you know, that kind of thing. You know that dynamic. Paul, <laughs> Paul would say some of this potentially could be in league with the demons, the teachings of demons. This is the most surprising heresy, like I think most of us could possibly imagine, that this is the thing that God goes, that, that Paul goes after. So 
there was this teaching out there, and it, it, a lot of scholars believe it was wrapped up with this group they were called the Gnostics, or the pro, like this early version of the Gnostics, who basically had this view that everything material was bad. The human body, intrinsically ugly, evil, a distraction from the genuine spiritual matters, uh, and anything that really has to do with the body. So, marriage and sex, food and drink, anything that would kind of be enjoyable within your human body ought to be viewed with suspicion and probably rejected. That was, that's a group that lots of the New Testament writers end up sort of boxing with in their, in their writings. And that's ex exactly, this, this right here fits the bill of that kind of view. So what if, what if aspects of this sort of body-denying, uh, marriage-denying, food-denying teaching are in fact deep, strategic, spiritual warfare? What if one of the enemy's key strategies in his repertoire is to keep you from enjoying the good things that God has given to you? That's what Paul is getting at. That's what Paul is saying. C.S. Lewis was uniquely dialed into this for numerous reasons, um, but I want to quote this from, from his, his uh, book, The Screwtape Letters. If you don't know that book, C.S. Lewis writes from the perspective of a senior demon writing letters of advice to a young demon. And it's very fascinating. So all of it's written from like this twisted perspective, you know, uh, to, to kind of talk about demonic strategy and kind of the opposite of the good and beautiful and true tr truth of Christianity. Uh, and so, so hear this, read this in a demon's voice through C.S. Lewis's pen. So he, he, he says to the younger demon, never forget that when we are dealing with any pleasure in its healthy and normal and satisfying form, we are, in a sense, on the enemy's ground. That's God's ground. I know we have won many souls through pleasure. All the same, it's his invention, not ours. He's a hedonist at heart. All those fasts and vigils and stakes and crosses are only a facade. We're only like foam on the seashore. Out at sea, out in his sea, there's pleasure and more pleasure. He makes no secret of it. Quote, at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. Quoting the scriptures. He has filled his world full of pleasures. There are things for humans to do all day long without his minding in the least. Sleeping, washing, eating, drinking, making love, playing, praying, working. Everything has to be twisted before it's of any use to us. End quote. I think that's exactly right. He's saying that Pleasure, enjoyableness, um, receiving good gifts, not uh, in its undistorted form. That's God's territory. That's God's playground. That's God's generosity on display, poured out on and received by his people. It can become a horrific nightmare when it's twisted, as it often is. It's maybe, maybe more common to encounter the twisted forms of these things than the pure and good forms. But nonetheless, I, I think this insight is brilliant. And it's actually true on the flip side that experiencing the good things of God um, and the good things of God through his image bears, the good things that humans create as well, um, can be way, like a, a, a key way into the faith for some. C.S. Lewis himself, his conversion is described uh, in the book Surprised by Joy. It's wonderful if you've never read it. It's like a kind of a spiritual autobiography. 
But, but Lewis basically talks about, he, he kind of creates this, he uses this word joy in a technical sense to talk about kind of this ineffable sense of like deep satisfaction that points beyond itself to, to, to ultimately to God is what he decided. But he talks about in childhood thinking, he, he, it's this beautiful, I, I'm not going to do it justice, but he describes this little memory. He, he talks about as his first instance of encountering this joy when his brother brought this little like toy garden, like this little tiny little garden he had made like in a, in a box or something that had mosses and little house and little creatures. And there was just something about Lewis like seeing this that in his little childhood mind and heart sparked a like, oh my gosh, there is something so beautiful and fun and joyous, a feeling that Lewis began to chase the rest of his life. He says he, he found it in his, his, uh, his brother's toy garden. He found it in this book called Squirrel Nutkin. <laughs> I don't even know what that is. Uh, a little book that he says instilled with him the idea of autumn and poetry when he was a child as well. But into adulthood, he said he found it again on huge waves of Wagnerian music and Norse and Celtic mythology, which ultimately led him to, to study such things as a scholar. For Lewis, it was these joys, these moments that, that raised this question like for him that, that he, he never had a satisfying answer to until he encountered the God of the Bible, which was, this is pointing to something, but what? This is stirring up this longing in me for, for, for a deeper satisfaction that these little satisfactions can point to. What is that? And through a long, sort of tedious process, Lewis ends up finding the Christian God, Jesus himself, the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, to be the source of this joy, the one that it's all pointing to. That's why he named his book after this, Surprised by Joy. It's the thing that led him into faith. Praise God. So, Paul describes the teachings of demons as these teachings that would denigrate basically the material, but he mentions specifically marriage and sex and food. And so what we can clearly see here is that Paul would have us as Christians reject sort of a false asceticism or an over, overly legalistic picture of how we engage in the world. Paul is not one who would say the body is bad in and of itself a basic view that everything has to be pragmatic, pragmatically oriented around like quote-unquote spiritual goals is, is not correct in Paul's view. On the flip side, because this is a verse that would be really easy to read and go, sweet, like this is awesome, like everything, everything then must be uh, fair game. This verse also, as we're going to read on, as he starts talking about how you discern through these things, he would reject a false asceticism and legalism, but he would also reject a false kind of libertinism, an anything-goes view, a, a pure hedonism that's just after pleasure for pleasure's sake, uh, if you will. So Paul himself, in different writings, even in this very book, in the book of 1 Timothy, he speaks of proper and improper ways to engage marriage and sex, food and drink, and so on and so forth. Um, I like the way Gary Thomas puts it in his book, Pure Pleasure. He says, the book of Proverbs, for example, presents pleasure in two lights. One, as a trap that can lead to our ruin. And I think that's obvious. That's probably how we talk about it most in Christian churches. Proverbs 21, 17, Proverbs 14, 31. Pleasure can be a trap that leads you to ruin. Or as a gift from God that demonstrates his blessing and favor, like Proverbs 10, 28. Christians need to understand that there are 
there are two ways that pleasure can manifest itself in our lives. We can be mastered by it and destroyed by it, or it can be a channel by which we connect with everything good about our Creator God. Does that make sense? So we just have to acknowledge that. Paul would not deny that. I just want to, want to state that clearly. So how do we navigate these things then? If it's not so simple as just receive everything or reject everything, what do we do? What do we do? Well, Paul goes on, and his answer is, to, to put words in his mouth, is something like discernment, becoming one who can see between, who, who can carefully assess and make reasonable, informed, uh, God-honoring choices. Another phrase might be engaged reception of things, not passive. Another thing we could say is what phrase we've already used, holy attention. Holy attention to the things that are around us. So he moves on in the next two verses to give us some tools for how to do this. And he, he listen to what he says, starting in verse 4. He says, for, so he's giving us his theological rationale for what he's saying. These are the teachings of demons that say these things. For, everything created by God is good. He's quoting, he's, he's quoting Genesis 1, right there. Everything created by God is good. And nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. For it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. So he's holding up here this practice of holy attention that's not ignoring or denigrating everything around us, but it's curious and it's alert. It's not passive reception of everything, but it's active and discerning alongside the word of God and prayer. That's the, that's the deal. So to, you, to take that, I want to just kind of give a basic framework for it. And this is so basic that it might feel insulting, but I, I think it's still helpful for us to, to think through. So tools for how to do this. Well, the first step is simply noticing. Step one, if we, if we want to develop the habit of holy attention, is just being people who notice. People who notice what's going on around us. Um, it's really hard, we will continue to mention this, it's really hard to be a people who notice the things around us when we have our attention totally consumed by advertising. Specifically, and most insidiously, in the form of the smartphone that's right in, right in all of our hands half the time. It is really hard to be attentive to what's happening in the room, in your body, in your friend, in the community, in your city, in your world, whenever you're preoccupied with a small digital screen that's literally serving as a barrier or a mediator or a content filter between you and all of those things. Attention is not a given, and I think we probably live in our particular day, in our particular kind of part of the world, in our culture, in one of the most distraction-prone times in all of human history. I really believe that. Um, so don't take it as a granted, yes, I notice what's going on around me. I generally don't. I generally don't. I, I truly believe. In, in her book, Liturgy of the Ordinary, uh, Tish Harrison Warren again, she says this. She says, listen, listen to this. The new life into which we are baptized is lived out in days, hours, and minutes. God is forming us into a new people, and the place of that formation is in the small moments of today. Alfred Hitchcock said movies are, quote, life with the dull bits cut out. And we tend to want a Christian life with the dull bits cut out. Yet God made us to spend our days in rest and work and play, taking care of our bodies, our families, our neighborhoods, our homes. What if all these boring parts matter to God? What if days passed in ways that feel small and insignificant to us are weighty with meaning and part of the abundant life that God has for us? 
It's not just a what if. I think she's exactly right. That is the case. And the only way we can access that, that sense of significance to the things around us is to start by just noticing what is actually happening around you. Who is around you? What is going on? Where do you find yourself? So eyes to see, noticing. But it's not just noticing. There's also a process of discernment that comes in. And Paul mentions specifically the Bible and prayer. He mentions specifically uh, these experiences being sanctified by the Word of God and by prayer. And so I would say a, a, couple, a number of things about this. First, we should think of this chiefly as cultivating intimacy with God. That's what he's driving at. The Bible and prayer are, are tools, the, probably the two best tools, to cultivate a sense of closeness and intimacy with our loving Father. Scriptures give us the eyes to see the things that matter to God. They, they help us clue into his heartbeat. They help us come into his values, his way of doing things, his declaration of the good, the beautiful, and the true. Scripture attunes us to the good shepherd's voice. You want to know how God speaks, what kinds of things he cares about. Come to his word that's there for all to read. Savor it, study it, read it, meditate on it, memorize it. Let it dwell richly within you. Not as, an end of it, not as an end unto itself, but as a means of knowing him, knowing him, God who inspired it. And then prayer deepens this and makes it a vital connection. Prayer, we express our dependence on him. We, we actually make space in the day-to-day of our lives to commune with him, to set time aside, to ask him for things, to try to listen to him, to, to, to praise him, to worship him, to, to just confess to him, to empty our hearts before him. There you go. But I like, I like how Warren gets at this idea of praying, praying with your eyes open. I, <laughs> there's this quote from G.K. Chesterton. He said this. He says, you say grace before meals. All right. But I say grace before the play and the opera and grace before the concert and pantomime and grace before I open a book and grace before sketching, painting, swimming, fencing, boxing, walking, playing, dancing and grace before I dip the pen in the ink. That's good. That's really good. So the sense of what does Scripture have to say about the things around me, more and more learning to discern, like, how does God operate? What is his heart like? How does he think about the things that are around me? And prayer. Prayer for, and part of that prayer is asking God to drill these things deeply down into our hearts. And even before you step into the mundane things of life, before you go about sketching, to use Chesterton, that you're bathing that in prayer. God, let me enter this in a way that honors you and glorifies you. Whatever joy there is to be found here, let me find it in a way that points me back to you. May my work here glorify you every step of the way. Love that quote. So that's the basic heart of this. The word of God and prayer are means by which we come to know the heart of our gracious, giving, loving Father. But there are some theological concepts, I think, too, that... that are really helpful in this broader concept that are you know, de- derived from the scriptures. But I think if we're going to do this well, we need to have thick in our minds things like the theology of the generosity of God, like we've been spending a lot of time talking about. Who is God? What is his relationship to this world around us? That flows into it, the, the doctrine of creation and general revelation we've been talking about. Just what is this stuff that is around me? What is its relationship to him? Is it something to be suspicious of or is it something to be received in gratitude? Obviously, we've been arguing for the latter. 
We need a theology of, of revelation and creation and, and, and to learn and to, to remember day to day that all of creation around us is meant to sing about him. Um, we need a theology of sin, as we've said each of these weeks, because this biblical story doesn't just end in Genesis 2 and say, great, everything's awesome, the world is beautiful, uh, it's wonderful, just go out and enjoy it. No, we have a fall, we have rebellion, we have sin that de- deserves justice and judgment. We, we, we have broken things in the world. We have a marred image of God within us. We have people whose work now, as we go about and fill the earth as we have, that now comes with evil and destruction and abuse and all kinds of evil mixed in. Yes, all humans are still in the image of God. There is dignity and value there, but we now also carry so much ugliness too that we perpetuate. We have to keep that category in mind as well or else we lose something deeply important. Very practically, a theology of sin leads us in these things to to think through from the negative, like there's so many commands in scripture, flee from things that cause you to sin. As we're talking about receiving all things, you have to set that right next to flee from sin. So that's one very practical guardrail as we're trying to do this work of holy attention. If you're uh, considering like, is this something I should really be engaging with? Flee it, it causes you to sin, flee it. That's what scripture would declare. The flip side of that is positively, uh, I don't have, I didn't copy it in, I don't have it quoted, but it's that passage, uh, now I can't remember, is it Colossians? Whatever's beautiful, whatever's true, think about such things. Anybody just want to read that? Do you have that accessible? Is it Philippians? Somebody read it for us. (laughs) This is sword drill. You won! You won. Thank you. It's a beautiful verse. If anything is good, anything is true, anything is commendable, think about such things. Fill your minds with those things. Let those things crowd out those things which would, you know, lead you into sin and otherwise. So there's a negative and there's a positive implication of this. Another doctrine we should have readily accessible as we're trying to do this is the doctrine of common grace that we've hinted at in this series. And what that means is God is so gracious. We talk about grace a lot in the context of saving grace. How are people saved? Jesus had to die for our sin to forgive us. That's what the Bible repeatedly declares. We all need his saving. But there's also this other kind of grace. Jesus talks about it in Matthew when he's talking about uh, enemy love, actually. And he points to the example of God. He says, God makes the rain fall on the good and the bad. He makes the sun shine on the good and the bad. There is a type of grace. It's not saving. It's not, it's not the same kind that comes through receiving Jesus and what he's done on the cross, but it's a type of grace that he gives to everyone. It's the stuff we've been talking about. He enables everyone, the molecules of your body to hang together, even if you hate him. He enables you to enjoy the beauty of the warm sun, even if you curse him. He enables you to enjoy the satisfaction of water and quenching your thirst and good food. He enables you with creative gifts even. You know, that's why we don't have to get so caught up, like who's the best, I don't know, jazz guitarist in the world? They better be a Christian. If I'm gonna listen. No, like whoever that is, if, let's assume they're not a Christian. God 
in his grace, enabled them the capacity to do that. And yes, it takes hard, hard work and practice, but without God's fundamental enabling and opportunity and aptitude that he gave them, they would not become the greatest jazz musician in the world. They wouldn't even be able to hold a guitar. The grace of God, I, I understand this, friends, the grace of God is so deep and pervades everything, even for those who actively curse this God. Wow. I, th- this should just expand our, our, our sense of his generosity. Now, those people still need his saving grace. They still need the cross of Christ, but he is gracious to them nonetheless in these ways that are deep and significant and rich. So a theology of common grace, maybe one other thing we would say, then this is not exhaustive. These are kind of just off the cusp here, but um, we also need a theology of the incarnation of Jesus and the resurrection, which does numerous things. Theology of incarnation, that the Son of God, the eternal Son of God, took on human flesh. It does a number of things. First, have you ever thought about what Jesus was doing before his baptism and the start of his public ministry? You ever think about that much? The Bible doesn't say much about it. But Jesus' public ministry was about three years, where he was teaching and healing and doing these amazing things. Uh, His baptism at the hand of John the Baptist started this period off. A lot of people view that as the time where the Holy Spirit came upon him in bodily form in this fresh and empowering way. So what was going on the 30 years before that? He lived a life. He was a son. He apprenticed under his carpenter father and became a carpenter himself. He worked with wood. Isn't that fascinating? The incarnate Son of God spent 30 years just being a kid and then being, well, you become an adult. You become an adult much, much earlier in that co- culture and context. Became a working carpenter. I love that image of the creator God now working with the things from within creation, like molding wood into beautiful things and helpful things, cultivating in that sense. But my point is this. Those 30 years, despite not being recorded much in the scriptures, they're full of meaning and significance for us because it means like if the Son of God honored God, was perfectly sinless, perfectly glorified his God his, God, his entire life, and he did it through the ordinary means of just being a family and community member and a carpenter, that means you can too. That means you can too. That means the things in your life that feel so removed and disconnected, they're full of significance. It was the same with Jesus. 30 years of his life, friends, before his public ministry. The other thing it reminds us is just the goodness of the material and the human body, and this helps us cut against this this Gnostic idea we were talking about, skepticism towards the body and the material world and all all such things, because God himself incarnated in a body. That means he values the body. Means he, I mean, we go back to Genesis 1, he created us with bodies. That wasn't some fluke. That wasn't a product of the fall. The material world is very good, including your body. We're going to talk more about this next week. But more than that, Jesus, you know, he did his ministry, increasing opposition from the religious leaders. Uh, He ends up being crucified. He dies. He's buried. And then he resurrects. Aha. Okay, now if there's a moment to leave all this kind of physical stuff behind, it's the resurrection, right? Now we can kind of get a clean slate. No, Jesus comes back with a body. He's embodied. It's different. It's different. Paul's wrestling with this in the book of, late in the book of Romans. Like, how was his resurrection body different from ours? There are differences. But we see Jesus eating, being touched, hugging people, um, 
Like, it's a real body. That's the whole implication of the resurrection. That real embodied life goes on. It goes on for Jesus, and it will go on for us too who are in Christ when we are raised. So, anyway, that's a quick snapshot of just taking Paul's advice. Let the scriptures dwell within us and let them become a framework for how we then go and encounter all the things of this world. That was very quick, and there's certainly more that can be said, but I hope that's a helpful starter in some sense. So that's all part of the discernment process. We let the word of God and prayer, our communion with God, be a lens through which we come to every experience of life, from the mundane to the sublime. Then, once, you know, once, we've, once, once we've encountered something and we see no reason to reject it, you receive it and you enjoy it. You embrace it. You take the thing. You let its intention, its nourishment of you, its satisfaction of you, whatever it is, rightly understood, not twisted in the sense that C.S. Lewis said, then you receive it and you get to enjoy it. And you get to do it with confidence that this is a gift for you. Take and eat. Taste and see that the Lord is good, you know? That enjoyment then, Paul, Paul uses this word explicitly, should lead to thanksgiving, thankfulness. You don't just let the thing be what it is, but you give thanks. You give thanks to the, first to the person who gave to you. If a person cooked you a good meal, thank them for the grace of God operative through them to supply you with this beautiful thing. But then don't just stop there. Go back to the God who is behind this all, enabling this all, empowering this all, glorifying this all, and give him praise. Give him thanks. Well, I'll say, give him thanks, and then something even deeper. A lot of us are, are maybe decent at giving God thanks or declaring, thank you, God, for this thing. But then it goes one step further. I'll come back to C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis is just so good on this subject. That's why I keep coming back to him. But in his book, Letters to Malcolm, he says, he says this. He's talking about his experience of joy and kind of the recognition of how it led him to God. And he says, I have tried since that moment to make every leisure into a channel of adoration. I don't mean simply by giving thanks for it. One must, of course, give thanks, but I mean something different. The heavenly fruit is instantly redolent of the orchard where it grew. The sweet air whispers of the country from whence it blew. It's a new message. We know we are all being touched by a finger of that right hand at which there are pleasures forevermore. There need be no question of thanks or praise as a separate event, something done afterwards. To express the tiny theophany is itself to adore. Here, here's, here's, here's where it all leads to. Gratitude explains, exclaims very properly, how good of God to give me this. That's a good thing. We should say it. But adoration says, what must be the quality of that being whose far-off and momentary coruscations are like this? One's mind runs back up the sunbeam to the sun. So it's not just, it's not just thank you, God. That's indispensable, but it goes even richer than that. Like, how good, how good is this God that he creates this? It turns into worship, friends. It turns into worship, if we will let it. So, noticing, discerning, enjoying, thanking, and then praising and adoring. That's the proper course of things. Every good thing, we'll say it again, is a grace. Another word for gift. 
And that same grace, that same grace was chiefly expressed, lest we forget, in the sacrifice of the Son of God. How do we know that God really is this gracious God? We see it in creation, of course. We see it all throughout the scripture, but we see its pinnacle in the fact that God so loved the world that he gave his only son. He gave his son to be the propitiation for the sins of the world, that none would perish, but that any could be saved through him by throwing their faith on him, trusting him, receiving him. He's so gracious, friends. He is so gracious. So when we think about the grace of God, we find its pinnacle in Jesus. And I just, at the end of the day, what all of this is meant to lead us to is to see him and to savor him more and more and more. The call is to see every moment again from the mundane, the small things, the things we take for granted, the things that we we don't even notice, but to begin to notice them all the way up to the sublime things, the things that just can't help but scream to us, like there is something deeper and richer here. There is some connection to God here that you can't avoid. I trust we've all had those moments sometime or another. But whatever moments, to see every moment as an opportunity to connect with this gracious God. If you're a Christian, if you've already trusted in Jesus for your salvation, then this all becomes radical reconfirmation of just how loving and gracious he is. If you're not a Christian, if you've never trusted Jesus, then I want you to consider the idea that there is so much goodness and beauty around you and that that did not come from nowhere. It has actually been a loving God pouring out grace upon you from the moment you took your first breath. And the best thing you can do is to turn to him and say, I want more. Not just more stuff, I want you the giver of these things, the source of these things, the creator of these things, the generous, gracious, self-giving God who has given even more than a beautiful sunset. He's given his very son to bring you home, to bring you close. That's the gospel. That's the gospel, friends. I love this. I think I, think I read this in a couple of books. I think Liturgy of the Ordinary might have been one, but I... I I, this idea stuck with me. Forgive me if I'm, I don't have the, the reference here, but it pointed out that there's the beautiful hymn, um, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. You've, I, I, most of you probably have this memorized. Turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glorious grace. It's a beautiful line. That's a true line. What what the hymnist is getting at there is the idea, I think they're using the word earth in the sense of the world, which is the system uh, set up in contrast to God. It's under the rule of the principalities of darkness. Uh, There's Satan and the teachings of demons. All these things are related to this. We look on the glorious face of Jesus and the things of the world, they grow dim. The things that the world says to value, we, we get to reject it all grows so dim in comparison to the glory of our Jesus. That's right and good and true, but it's like the Proverbs. You can spin this another way. We could express the seemingly opposite sentiment and represent the scriptures as well if we said the hymn this way. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face and the things of earth will grow strangely bright in the light of his glorious grace. 
If we turn it from thinking about the world that's set up in opposition to God and we think about the world, the earth, in terms of his glorious creation on display, when we look at Jesus, everything becomes brighter. It all has a chance to become a pointer to his glorious grace, friends. Amen? So, I love that hymn. We will continue to sing that hymn. But I want you to see how we can sing that two ways, and they can both be right. And maybe that's the heart of this. Maybe that's the heart of this. Maybe that's the heart of how we understand our place in the world, is allowing for that nuance, that discernment that's required. The world is broken. Some of you, I'll just say this too before we conclude. I know some of you maybe are in seasons of deep pain and discouragement, and the more we talk about the goodness of God on display all around us, you're like, screw that. Like, I'm not getting any of that. My life is full of suffering right now, and to which I would say the Bible is gloriously complex, and it never papers over difficulty, and it never papers over pain, and it never denies the reality that, that there are long stretches of suffering and dark nights of the soul, and on and on and on. So I just want to acknowledge that. If that's you, and you're sitting here, and you're like, this just is not resonating at all. That is totally fair. Um, so just hear that, and know that even in those moments, I, 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 I believe there could potentially be a way to receive and to notice and to savor even the gifts of God in those, in those midst. And more than that, to identify with the, the Savior Jesus who came and suffered alongside us, that we may not be left in those places. And that whatever difficulty and pain and struggle we're dealing with right now, it has its final answer in him, the God who suffered alongside us and who promises one day everything will be put right. And whatever barriers there are to receiving his goodness and his blessing around you, they'll be gone. They will, they will be gone through him taking his deepest, taking our deepest sufferings into himself and our alienation from God into himself. Amen? So, just felt, wasn't planning to say that, but I, I think I was supposed to say that. Um, so, I love you all. This is exciting stuff. We're going to keep going deeper. We've got several more weeks to keep thinking about these ideas. Um, but I trust, I trust and I hope that this week we'll be a people who, who put this into practice to step out trying to develop a holy attention, a discerning attention that can lead us to the worship and praise of our God. Amen? Okay. Let's pray.